I just thought I'd put in that first story, that more familiar story probably to many of you, uh, to give a little bit of context to the story that we're looking at today, the story of the calling of Matthew. And the point I simply want to make uh, for you this morning is, is very simple, really, that in every moment of following Jesus, in every moment of responding to his call on our lives, he is doing a work in us, and that, that work is actually a healing miracle. And that's the case at whatever stage we are in our walk with Jesus, whether we've never responded to that call at all, um, and we come to, come to him almost as Matthew does uh, in the passage, or whether we've been following him for many, many years, um, and following Jesus is a, is a daily decision uh, just simply to be part of what we understand God to be doing in our own lives um, and in the lives of those around us. It's always about God's work of healing us. He never needs us to do anything. He can do everything on his own, but he includes us uh, as his followers for our sake and for our healing. And that's what we're going to be looking at as we dive in to this story this morning. Let me, um, let me retell it. This is, no, uh, this is no comment on Mark's reading. Um, I just want to tell it, uh, maybe fill in some of the blanks as we, as we go through it. Matthew was a despised man. There are a couple of reasons why he was despised. The first is that as a tax collector, he probably overcharged quite a lot of people. He Basically, he would have been in charge of collecting tax, maybe from the fishermen by the sea uh, where he seems to have been working. Um, and that, that money uh, would go to, um, to King Herod. Um, and typically, he would have to, in order to have actually any money for himself to live on, he would cream a little bit of extra off the top of that. And a lot of tax collectors took that to quite some extremes. Um, and uh, so they had a seriously bad reputation. If you think of the other famous tax collector in the Bible, it's Zacchaeus, isn't it? Who was jolly rich on, uh, on basically abusing all of the poor in his town. That's the kind of reputation that tax collectors had. And most likely, Matthew would have heard of this man, Jesus. Um, he certainly would not have considered becoming a follower. He probably knew that Jesus didn't approve of the reputation uh, of what, uh, what tax collectors were reputed for. Just a couple of chapters earlier, Matthew might have been listening to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this. He said, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors do the same. Can you, so can you imagine if he's there and he winces at the sound? Um, so he was despised as a tax collector who abused his power and cheated, um, probably. He was also despised because he was a sellout to Rome. He was a sellout to Herod. The reason he was employed uh, was because he was a local guy. He would have known the customs. He would have known really what's going on on the street. And therefore, he wouldn't be swindled by the people that were standing in front of his tax booth. He was the voice of, effectively, of Rome um, amidst a people who felt themselves to be, um, to be occupied by Rome. This is the presence of the occupying army amidst them. And yet, he was supposed to be one of them. Of course, as the Messiah, as he would understand it, walks towards his booth, uh, the last thing he would expect was any kind of call. 
remembering that as far as he was concerned, a Messiah was somebody who was going to come and free the people of Israel from the Romans. He, of course, is the ultimate sellout to the Romans. So he probably stares at the floor as Jesus starts to approach. He certainly would never have had the nerve to ask to become a follower. He did not match up. He was a sellout. He was a cheat. He was despised. But it becomes obvious that Jesus is walking straight for him. You know that moment when you're trying to avoid somebody or you're trying, you're, and then you realize, no, they really are coming to you. And there he is standing right in front of, of Matthew, and he says, follow me. In, in the context, that was quite a loaded thing to say. You might say that it sounded a little bit like this. Come and live with me day to day, day in, day out, and learn all about my way of life and, and how you might replicate it um, and be my presence uh, when I'm long gone. That was some of what was tied up in that simple phrase, follow me. It's also actually the wrong way around. You'd never asked somebody else to follow you. It, if they wanted to follow you, that was their business, to come and ask you. Um, let me give you a, a slightly different example. I remember uh, many years ago as a, uh, when I was working in music, I, um, I turned up at a gig to discover that one of the other musicians involved in the concert was one of my great heroes that I'd always wanted to learn piano from. Um, and there he is, right in front of me. So I plucked up all the courage I had, and I went up to him and said, do you, do you ever give lessons? Would you be willing? I'd happily come down to Bath, where he lives, and you know, but I'd, you know, and he said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. I couldn't quite believe it. Um, and dare I say, actually, I never had the nerve to take him up on it. Um, so we can talk about that some other time. That's what it would have felt like to go to Jesus and say, can I be one of your followers? But imagine if none of that had happened, and I walked into that, that room and I saw, his, his name is Jason Rebello, by the way. Um, I, if I'd seen Jason, um, and he had walked up to me and said, hi, do you want to come and learn? Do you want to come down to my house, maybe spend a few weeks living with me and uh, we can really study piano together? I would have been lifting my jaw off the floor. That is what Jesus does for Matthew. And of course, Matthew leaves everything and follows Jesus. What must have ensued at that point would have been jolly awkward. Um, and I, I, I'd love to know what the social... We know a little bit about the social dynamic within the disciples. But um, you might remember that among the other disciples, there were a bunch of fishermen. He's probably swindled most of them, and they would have known him well. Suddenly, they're on the same side. Also in the disciples was another guy called Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was part of an extremist group that was trying to work particularly hard to kick out the Romans. He was at the opposite end of the spectrum from Matthew. Suddenly, Matthew, the sellout, and Simon, the zealot, are on the same group. I would have thought there would be quite a lot of reintroducing to be done at that moment. But Matthew, giddy in all the excitement of having found this opportunity to belong to Jesus and to his group of followers, invites Jesus and his followers to a special meal at his house where he's going to invite all of these other sinners and tax collectors and sellouts to come and join. And of course, Jesus says yes. 
and he, of course, he drags the disciples along, and I can't help but imagine that they were all sitting there slightly fuming at having to sit around the table uh, with all of these people that they, for many, many years, had despised so deeply. As the story goes on beyond uh, what we have in our passage, we know that uh, Matthew does become part of Jesus in a circle. We'll read that in the next chapter or two. Um, he's sent out as Jesus' uh, uh, representative. Um, and, and ultimately, we, we believe by church tradition that he came to write one of the main biographies of Jesus that we have. In fact, that is the very book that we're reading from at the moment, is named Matthew. It's the same Matthew. This section of this book is full of stories about healing. And it's got peppered also with a couple of stories about following Jesus. And it culminates uh, in the, on, later actually on the same page, say page 975, with Jesus sending out uh, the 12, of which one is Matthew. Uh, this ultimate sense of Jesus' followers being sent to be his hands and feet uh, in the world beyond where Jesus could be bodily present. By placing this story here, I think that Matthew is trying to help us hear that healing and following are actually part of the same thing. Matthew is just as in need and just as helpless as the man in the previous story who was paralyzed. The same as all of the other people in all of these healing miracles. He was just as in need and just as helpless. His sickness may have presented differently, but it was just as real, at least in a spiritual sense. And I don't say that to make light of those of you who are battling really serious illnesses or have done in the past. Let me explain a little bit more about what I mean by that as we go along. But Matthew makes this link between healing and following explicit, doesn't he? There in verse 12, as he responds to the complaints of the Pharisees, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Implication being that Matthew is sick, and this is part of his healing treatment. The sickness, as we then discover, is the sickness of sin. Verse 13, this sort of the mirroring uh, phrase that Jesus uses. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners. It's quite a word, isn't it, in our culture. We, we only ever really use it playfully, don't we? Because to use it seriously just seems so absurd, so judgmental. That's the, uh, that's the baggage that uh, goes with it. And actually, on the whole, that is how it has been used. And certainly in our passage... That is the case. On the lips of the Pharisees, it is a word of judgment, of pride, um, of lacking compassion. What, if you can get past the sound of the word, what the word really means, or what it meant in that context, was a sinner was somebody who simply didn't measure up, who had done something, or by association with things that they uh, were involved with, had excluded themselves, they'd made themselves outsiders. Uh, to the people of God. 
Matthew had betrayed God's people. Matthew had betrayed God's kingdom in his actions. He had actions. He had made himself unfit to be part of the people of God. He had put himself on the outside. That's what sin means uh, in this passage here. And that's what it means for you and I, too. That's what we are helpless to heal ourselves from. If you were very observant, you might have noticed that in that previous story of of the paralyzed man, um, uh, Matthew also plays a little bit with the idea of physical healing and spiritual healing. Uh, As the man lies before him, what does Jesus say? He says, your sins are forgiven. Uh, and the Pharisees think this is an outrageous claim because it's basically, you can, you can only sin if you've, you can only forgive sins that have been done against you. This is a claim to be God in effect. The Pharisees are outraged by this. And of course, Jesus' response is, well, actually, that's the bigger thing that he has to deal with. That is the bigger challenge in his life. But if you want evidence uh, that I can actually do that, let's, yeah, get up and walk. That's, a, that's the sort of paraphrase, that's the jez paraphrase of the story of the paralyzed man. Now, what Jesus is not saying is that the man's sickness was a direct result of his sin. Um, it is clear uh, that that is not what Jesus believed, even though that was a common belief at the time. There's a few passages that I could point you to afterwards where Jesus explicitly says that is not true, that is not the case. And yet... On a macro level, there is some sense that sinfulness, our rejection of God, the the deterioration of our relationship with God has led to the state of the world, the brokenness of our world. And that that the brokenness of that relationship with God is actually more serious than any of the way it presents itself in illness and even death. And so in the story of the paralyzed man, Jesus goes straight to the heart of the issue by offering him forgiveness. He welcomes the man into his new kingdom where there will be no sickness, there will be no death. And he gives him a foretaste of that, an evidence of it, by giving him physical healing there and then. Because you see, earthly illness, earthly death, are unnatural invasions into our world that enslave us, make us things we were never supposed to be. And they alert us to the fact that something is badly wrong in our world, whether or not we experience it ourselves, whether or not we are that paralyzed man. We have the same basic underlying need for forgiveness, for rescue, Uh, from our own sinfulness and from the broken world that that places us in. So the call of Matthew, and in fact Jesus' call to you and to me, is to be understood as a healing miracle. Not just in the sense that we come to him helpless um, and uh, and dependent on him uh, to do that work in us, but also because the result is that he offers us rescue from 
this world of sin and sickness. He offers us rescue into the restored heaven and earth, which he will one day fully bring present among us. Where all sickness and death is simply a thing of the past. And as we come to thy kingdom come, and as we maybe think about the five people that we're particularly praying for, Jesus, Matthew particularly, is encouraging us to think about those five people this way. Um, as people who are sick and wounded and in need of a great healer. Uh, there's never room for pride because we always understand ourselves to be in the same place. If we are proud, um, we don't understand ourselves. Let me show you how that, how that is unpacked a little bit in our passage. The Pharisees just can't bear the fact that Jesus has gone and had, had this hallow moment of a special meal of some sort with these people that are so disreputable. And Jesus, in his response, explains, of course, that, that it is for them, in fact, that he has come for. And then he quotes this Old Testament verse, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Um, and that comes from the book of Hosea. But I think its meaning is actually is, is fairly evident. Um, uh, it's fairly self-evident. The Pharisees were pretty good at the sacrifice bit. They were pretty good at doing the right temple activities too, as they would understand it, um, earn their way into God's good books. But Jesus says, actually, you've forgotten something that sits underneath all of that, something that sits at the very heart of God, which is mercy. That is, to, that is supposed to be the thing that characterizes your presence in the people of God. In other words, your pride, amidst all of your sacrificial goodness, shows that you are actually no better than anyone else. Your lack of mercy on these tax collectors shows that you are no better than them. So in one fell swoop, Jesus includes all of us in uh, this strange dinner party. Uh, however good we think we are, in the category of people in need of radical treatment, a heart transplant, one might say, so think about your five that way. Think of them as those who Jesus longs to come and heal through calling them to follow him. What's then the result, finally, of uh, this story in the life of Matthew? Well, Matthew is the same person he was, but he's been redeemed. Um, on one level, he has a new life. He has a new identity. The shame um, and, uh, and alienation of the past is done away with. He is forgiven. He finds a place of belonging to God's people and to God himself. And he also finds a new purpose um, to be part of God's people. And ultimately, uh, God uses him, as we said, to write one of the most important uh, uh, biographies of the life of Jesus this is what I want you to notice about that. That, Jesus, that in that moment of calling, 
Matthew, he doesn't wipe everything away. He wipes all of the sin away, but he doesn't wipe the essence of who Matthew is and who Matthew was created to be. As a tax collector, he would have had to work very hard at his literary skills. He would have had to have a very analytical mind, um, and Jesus is going to use that. He's going to use that as one of only two disciples who actually wrote one of these biographies. Um, so, and not only that, but actually in his this book here, he has an analytical mind that doesn't appear in the other ones. He's the one that's most analytical in the way the Old Testament is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So all of those things that God, that Matthew has used for bad, all of those things that have shaped Matthew in the darkness of his past are purified and redeemed and made part of what God is going to do. And that is the same for all of us. We get to be used for God's purposes. So, just very quickly to finish, what would it look like for you to respond today, not just for the first time, but for the thousandth time, to that call to follow Jesus, to be healed by him? Well, it's something that will cost you nothing and cost you everything. It costs you nothing because Jesus, as we said, takes the full initiative. He makes an invitation that we could never even request on our own. Uh, Matthew does nothing to make himself worthy of, as a follower of Jesus. And that's something that never changes. We never get to serve God out of any sense of worthiness. Um, whether you've been following him for years, there is never a moment for pride. There is also never a moment for burden. Whatever you think God might have placed on your heart to do, he still put it there for your sake and for your healing, not because somehow he needs you to fix his world for him. So that is what it might look like for you to respond to the call of God out of freedom um, that is freely offered to you. But just as the paralyzed man had to get up, we also have that sense of following. Matthew had to step out of his booth and follow um, the miracle was somehow meaningless without it. And in a sense, that cost him everything. The fishermen who followed Jesus, if it all went badly wrong, what did, well, as they understood it had done, in fact, later at the end of the story, do you remember what they do? Go back to fishing. You can do that if you're a freelancer. He couldn't do that. He was walking away from paid employment that he would never be able to get back into. He was making a massive career decision by leaving that booth but it was worth it for the new life and the new identity of being a forgiven follower of Jesus, belonging to him. And that is what is worth it for all of us as we respond to, the, to this invitation to follow God each day and every day, to be used for God's good purposes, to see all of the things that God has planted in our hearts, all of the ways that our past has shaped us, redeemed and renewed and purified for his sake. Um, in our lives. It's a miracle, but it's a slow one. It's a miracle that takes your whole life. Um, and with that in mind, we're just going to say a moment of prayer as the kids uh, are coming in. Lord Jesus, thank you for this miracle of healing that you perform in each of our lives. I pray that every day we would remember that that is what is happening and that we would come in, hum in humility before you and that we would know you continuing to transform us and heal us as we follow you every day. Use us, we pray. Amen.